At 6.30 p.m. on May 15, 1974, 14-year-old Marco Acosta was reading a Rolling Stone magazine in his mother's San Francisco home. They'd just finished eating dinner, and his mother had gone out to walk the dog. That's when the phone rang. Marco sighed and answered it. His father, Oscar Acosta, was on the other end of the line. Marco rarely knew exactly where his dad was or what trouble he might be in. In fact, he never really knew what to expect when he heard his father's voice. Like when his dad told him, I'm in Mazatlan. Marco had been there with his father before. It was a resort town along the western coast of Mexico, but it wasn't entirely clear to Marco what Acosta was doing there. They made small talk for several minutes. Marco promised to study hard and keep his grades above a B average. Acosta assured his son that he would behave and return stateside soon. Then Acosta hurried his son off the line. I have to go. I'm boarding a boat full of white snow. Marco rolled his eyes. He knew what that meant. His father's appetite for cocaine and other drugs was legendary. Marco replied, I hope you know what you're doing. Acosta assured him that he'd be fine. Marco worried about his father, just as he always had in the past, but there was nothing he could do. Helpless, Marco told his father he loved him, hung up the phone, and returned to his magazine. That was the last time Marco spoke to his father. Because after that night, no one saw or heard from Oscar Acosta ever again. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Today we're exploring the disappearance of Oscar Zeta Acosta. He was a fiery lawyer and an important figure in the Chicano civil rights movement during the 1960s. But after a long battle with drug addiction, Acosta mysteriously vanished during a trip to Mexico in 1974. Oscar Acosta wore many hats throughout his lifetime. In addition to being a father and a civil rights attorney, he served in the U.S. military and worked as a preacher and a missionary. Acosta also struggled with drug addiction for most of his life. He was both inspiring and infuriating, making as many friends as enemies. He was the author of two semi-autobiographical novels in the early 1970s. Through those pieces, he helped to invent what has been called gonzo journalism, 
a style of reporting that incorporates the writer as part of the story. Along his journey of self-discovery, he became friends with prolific writer Hunter S. Thompson. In fact, Acosta inspired the character of Dr. Gonzo in Thompson's best-selling book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, as well as the title of a Panic at the Disco album. But in May 1974, Acosta took a trip south of the border. Once there, he spoke briefly to his son Marco before disappearing without a trace. There are a few theories about what happened to Acosta in the wake of his disappearance. The first asserts that Acosta overdosed or had a drug-induced heart attack. His substance habit was well known amongst his family and friends. During that final phone call, he hinted that he'd been using cocaine. According to this theory, Acosta may have died in Mexico, his body buried before it could be identified. Our second solution suggests that Acosta was killed in a drug deal gone bad. Acosta didn't just use drugs, he dealt them when he was hard up for cash. Some believe that a transaction went south and Acosta died in a shootout with Mexicali drug lords. Our third and final theory hints towards a larger conspiracy that the United States government tracked Acosta down and killed him. It's well known that Acosta had become troublesome to the feds because of his revolutionary efforts. It's possible that the American government did away with him during that fateful trip to Mexico. Though he died in Mexico, Oscar Acosta's parents always wanted him to be American. They were working-class Chicano immigrants who raised Oscar in California's San Joaquin Valley. Acosta's parents wanted to leave their identities as Mexicans behind them. They believed that this was the only way for their children to get ahead, by starting fresh as Americans. When Oscar was born in 1935, he had birthright U.S. citizenship. And according to Acosta's sister, Anita, their parents insisted that their children dress, speak, and act like white people to fit in with their California community. Anita frustratingly recalled, My mother wanted us to be white. That was her main goal in life. At first, Oscar didn't understand why he had to pretend to be someone he wasn't. He was confused and angry. But at the same time, Acosta saw the way many Chicanos were treated by mainstream white society. When he was just eight years old, the Zoot Suit riots broke out in Los Angeles. Papers reported the news of white sailors attacking and beating young, well-dressed Chicanos, particularly those who wore trendy Zoot Suits. The alleged motivation for the attacks was that the fashionable clothes, which used a lot of fabric, were unpatriotic during wartime rationing. But the racial overtones of the attacks were impossible to miss. Nevertheless, Acosta's father, Manuel, continued to instill patriotism in his son. Acosta patiently listened to the stories of Manuel's time in the U.S. Navy during World War II. Manuel wanted to raise Acosta to be an American fighter, and the boy was happy to oblige. Acosta recalled... He wanted me to compete more than anything else. When I was five, he encouraged me to argue and fight with him. I guess that's where I became as nasty as I am. But Acosta didn't confine his brawls to the house. 
1946, he and several other Chicano boys were playing on the streets of their small town, Riverbank. But something on the pavement caught Acosta's eye. A leaflet with an American flag on the front. Instead of picking up the pamphlet, Acosta made a scene of spitting on the flyer. His friends were outraged, but Acosta didn't care. An argument broke out and escalated to an ugly fight. Acosta was outnumbered and ended up losing to the other boys. But the incident only fueled his fire more. Acosta's temper worsened as he grew older. He regularly found himself at odds with other kids. Not to mention, he was built heavier than his peers, which only added to his identity issues. He would later write, I was obese, ugly as a pig, and without any redeeming qualities whatsoever. He felt like a failure and believed he was incapable of being the macho man his father wanted him to be. But over time, his desire to fit in outweighed his anger. As a Chicano, he felt inferior to the wealthy white people in his community, and he even began to see the logic of his parents' beliefs about assimilation. So teenage Acosta gave in. He began to play the role his parents wanted for him. He played sports and even became president of his class. At the same time, he found a creative outlet in writing. Acosta poured his bottled-up emotions onto the page, but it didn't solve all of his problems. To deal with his difficult emotions, 15-year-old Acosta began drinking. In high school, he developed a reputation as a partier and boozer. And by the time he graduated, he suffered from chronic stomach ulcers, resulting from his alcohol abuse. This pain would trouble him for the rest of his life. Acosta had every intention of going to college, but life got in the way. When he finished high school in the early 50s, he was dating a white girl named Alice. He was head over heels about her, and the two had even discussed marriage. He truly believed she was the love of his life. But Alice's parents disliked Chicanos, especially Oscar. They were outraged that their daughter was dating someone with brown skin. Not to mention, Alice's Baptist family hated the fact that Oscar was a Catholic. Oscar was playing a losing game. Alice's parents forced her to break it off with Oscar, leading to a terrible argument between the two. So bad, in fact, that the police were called to the scene and officers had to haul a still screaming Acosta away. To add insult to injury, Alice went on to marry someone else later that year. Acosta was crushed. He fell into a pit of depression, which caused him to lose interest in his studies. He began thinking he wanted to do something bigger and better with his life. In 1952, he followed in his father's footsteps and enlisted in the Air Force. He was stationed at Hamilton Air Force Base, which meant relocating to San Francisco. In an unfamiliar city and still healing from his breakup with Alice, Acosta turned to prayer. During their relationship, he'd been irresistibly drawn to the Baptist faith, and that draw didn't lessen after their split. He decided to convert and became a practicing Baptist in San Francisco. 
Most Chicanos, including his family, were Catholic. At this time, Catholicism was a religion of outsiders. New immigrants from South and Central America, Ireland, and Italy were Catholic. Mayflower families were Protestant. So converting to a Protestant denomination was another way for Acosta to assimilate. As with many other interests in his life, he poured himself into his newfound faith. He believed this was his calling, his reason for existing. He poured over the Bible and even began preaching in his church. Then, when he was transferred to Panama with the Air Force, he ministered to the local population as well as to his military comrades. He set up a church in a nearby leper colony and taught the Bible to them as well. Acosta found that he was an extremely charismatic speaker and had a gift for persuasion. Big and brash, people naturally looked up to him as a leader. In fact, he believed he could convince people of just about anything. But as he neared the end of his time in the Air Force in 1956, he was plagued by doubts that were often accompanied with long nights of drinking. And worse, he'd begun to abuse harder drugs, stimulants, psychedelics, and amphetamines. While under the influence, he nursed doubts about the stories he'd been so passionately preaching for four years. He delved into his Bible, especially the Gospels. After some thought, Acosta ultimately had to face a shocking reality. He didn't believe any of it was true. To his mind, religion was an unreliable mashup of contradictory accounts and confusing theology. His faith fell apart and Acosta was left crushed, despondent and aimless. He thought he'd found his purpose and it had been ripped from beneath his feet. What would he do with his life now? The only things he could really depend on were the alcohol and drugs he used to numb the pain. Soon, Acosta hit rock bottom. After being discharged from the service and returning home, he attempted suicide. His family was shocked and heartbroken. They insisted Acosta check himself into a psychiatric facility to get the help he so desperately needed. Thanks to their urging, Acosta started to turn around. Although he didn't get clean, his drug use wasn't controlling his life anymore. Soon, a new romance developed, a sign that his life was back on track. In 1956, Acosta met and married a woman named Betty Dowd. Their love helped restore his will to live, and he began taking classes at the local junior college in San Francisco State. In 1959, they had their first and only child, a boy named Marco. After earning his undergraduate degree, Acosta took night classes at San Francisco Law School. He hoped to use his charisma and gift for persuasion to help a new cause. He wanted to defend marginalized Chicanos. As a Baptist preacher and missionary, he'd been on the right track, but he'd been preaching the wrong message to the wrong people for all the wrong reasons. Now he was on a new path. During law school, Acosta began to send some of his best poetry, short stories, and novels out to publishers. Though none were accepted, it was during this time that he first adopted the pen name Zeta, letter Z in Spanish. 
Acosta was inspired by the fictional Spanish-American freedom fighter known as Zorro. He saw himself in the character, a kind of urban Chicano Robin Hood. He also began to use the pseudonym the Brown Buffalo. Not unlike his fellow Chicanos, the Buffalo had also been hunted by Americans since the 19th century. With activist fervor quickly spreading in California in the late 60s, his timing was perfect. Acosta graduated from law school in 1965, and now the Brown Buffalo was ready to charge head first into the fight for Chicano civil rights. But his desire to help others was in constant conflict with his personal demons. Drugs and alcohol plagued him. In the years to come, these dueling qualities would inevitably lead to Acosta's death. Coming up, we'll explore Oscar Acosta's journey from civil rights attorney to novelist, then dig into the mystery of his disappearance. Now, back to the story. Following his discharge from the Air Force, Oscar Zeta Acosta got married, had a child, and started attending San Francisco State University. After graduating, he went to law school, earning his degree at age 30 in 1965. By then, his increasing dependence on drugs and alcohol led him and his wife Betty to divorce. But even this wasn't enough for him to give up drinking. It gave him false courage, which he applied to his ongoing Chicano rights activism. By the time he finished law school, he'd come to view himself through the lens of folk heroes like Zorro and Robin Hood. He wanted to work on behalf of his fellow Chicanos in their fight for civil rights. He passed the state bar exam in June 1966 and began working with the East Oakland Legal Aid Society serving low-income clients. He desperately wanted to help others, but he found that it was emotionally hard work and his heart wasn't always in the game. His law career began to feel like a rerun of his time as a preacher. He feared he would flake out and give up again. As he began questioning his purpose, his fear of failure resurfaced. He thought he'd found what he was looking for, only to run into another dead end on his journey to self-discovery. Rather than face these issues head on, Acosta ran away from his problems. In the summer of 1967, he quit his job in Oakland, abandoned his child, and left town with nothing more than a suitcase. He spent the next year trying to find himself. He traveled to Idaho and Colorado, he waited tables and worked odd jobs to make ends meet. Eventually, he found his way back home to El Paso, Texas, the city of his birth. There, Acosta began to reconnect with his Mexican identity. For the first time in his adult life, he was surrounded by Mexican-Americans who were just like him and shared many of his cultural experiences. He felt a renewed sense of his calling. He was ready to help his fellow Chicanos. Like Moses in the Bible, he wanted to lead them to a new destiny. This mission became even more apparent when he was arrested in January 1968. A drunken bar fight in Juarez, Mexico, put Acosta in jail for several days. 
Unfortunately, the Mexican judge didn't believe Acosta was a lawyer or an American citizen. And when he finally was released, Acosta had trouble getting back over the border into the U.S. The guards simply believed he was a Mexican, not a U.S. citizen at all. This experience crystallized his lifelong sense of how he and his fellow Chicanos didn't belong anywhere. He later wrote, What is clear to me after this sojourn is that I am neither a Mexican nor an American. I am neither a Catholic nor a Protestant. I am a Chicano by ancestry and a brown buffalo by choice. By early 1968, Acosta was ready to return to California and reestablish his legal practice. His brother Bob told him he should go to East Los Angeles and join up with the Chicano Civil Rights Movement, which was gaining serious traction. Acosta learned that leaders of the movement were focusing on the inequality in public education between whites and Chicanos. They were planning a student walkout in protest of East L.A. high schools. Acosta later explained, The bomb exploded in my head. I saw it all before me. This was exactly what the gods had in store for me. In the summer of 1968, 33-year-old Oscar Acosta moved into a hotel in East L.A. so he could be closer to the action. He even had business cards printed that read, Buffalo Z. Brown, Chicano Lawyer. Here in the Hispanic neighborhoods of East L.A., Acosta saw what he called a broken city filled with battered losers. Buildings were in disrepair. Streets and sidewalks were filthy and covered with litter. Homeless people were everywhere. It solidified his image of Chicanos as a group in need of a destiny. They were treated like insects, living on the street and being crushed under the heel of mainstream white society. Acosta wanted to show them a new way forward. He befriended many leaders of the local Chicano civil rights movement. His services were desperately needed, and he quickly built up a list of clients. Among the first were the so-called East Side 13, who led the school walkouts. During that protest in March 1968, Nearly 20,000 students and faculty from seven East L.A. schools had participated. But L.A. Mayor Sam Yorty declared that these walkouts were a communist plot. He ordered that the leaders be arrested. They were indicted in June and each faced up to 66 years in prison. Protests against their arrests spread across the city like wildfire. It was front-page news throughout California. Acosta was amongst the team of lawyers who successfully defended them in court. Thanks to his work, the charges against the group were eventually dropped. Acosta was now a hero within the movement. The walkout and the publicity it received sparked a major civil rights crusade in Los Angeles. And Acosta was right in the middle of it. His role in the campaign gave him a taste of what it was like to do something that actually made a difference. But deep down, something was missing. In the years that followed, he continued to defend high-profile clients and make a reputation for himself as a sought-after civil rights attorney. But it didn't seem like enough. Once again, he had a desire to do something more. He wrote... 
once in every century, there comes a man who has chosen to speak for his people. Who's to say that I am not such a man? Working in local activist movements wasn't enough. He needed to reach as many people as possible through literature. In the summer of 1971, he closed down his law practice and moved back to the San Francisco area. He intended to devote himself fully to writing a novel and likely use drugs and drinking to fuel his creativity. His first book, Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo, came out in 1972. His next, The Revolt of the Cockroach People, was published the following year. Both texts were semi-autobiographical novels depicting his life and efforts working on behalf of Chicanos. They were well-received and established Acosta as a significant literary voice within the movement. He began staging readings of his work and soon became a sought-after public speaker. But as was becoming a pattern, Acosta's success only triggered new lows. In January 1974, he began to have trouble with his ulcers, which he'd suffered from since he was a teen. This was a particularly bad episode. He was forced to check himself into a medical facility in San Francisco for more than a week. While he was there, he wrote to his 14-year-old son, Marco. Though Acosta was long divorced from Marco's mother, he tried to keep in touch with his son as much as possible. In the letter, he told Marco that he was planning to go to Mexico to work on his next book. He said he'd originally intended to go to Mexico City, but plans had changed. He didn't explain why he was going to visit Mazatlan instead. He hinted that he'd be making a lot of money while he was there, but he didn't say exactly how. As he'd promised, in January 1974, Oscar Acosta left for Mexico. Marco spoke to him sometime in the spring of that year. Acosta was in Mazatlan by then, and he repeated what he'd said in his letter a few months earlier, that he was hoping to make a lot of money. His last contact with his family came on May 15th in a final call to Marco. He told his son that he was about to board a boat full of white snow. Maybe that meant he was planning to party on a boat. More likely, it was a reference to cocaine. It's unclear exactly what he meant by this cryptic remark, but his son never heard from him again to ask about it, and neither did anyone else. When he hadn't come home by the fall of 1974, Oscar Acosta's family started to get worried. They conducted a desperate search, enlisting the Coast Guard and the FBI. They even sought help from the Salvation Army. Some family members traveled to Mazatlan to see if they could uncover any clues. But every avenue came up empty. Acosta had disappeared, vanished, and no one had any idea where he was. Over the years, a number of ideas have been put forth to explain what happened to Oscar Acosta. Some have been simple, say the boat he boarded was caught in a storm and sank. Others have been more outlandish, suggesting he had a drug-induced nervous breakdown and then developed a severe case of amnesia. But there are three theories that get more traction than most. The first is that Oscar Acosta fatally overdosed on drugs. 
It's possible Acosta was simply a victim of his own excess. While partying in Mexico, he overindulged and it led to his ultimate demise. Acosta was known to abuse drugs like cocaine, amphetamines, and LSD. He had a very long history with illicit substances. He'd started drinking as a teenager, and by the time he was in the military, he was smoking pot. In the early 1960s, he left home for long periods of time, claiming he was searching for himself while avoiding the responsibilities of family life. His drug use worsened during this time, but Acosta didn't see it that way. He believed it was opening his mind, helping him to visualize his path to greatness more clearly. He later wrote, psychedelic drugs have been important to the development of my consciousness. They've put me into a level of awareness where I can see myself and see what I'm really doing. Most of my big ideas and a lot of my creativity have sprung from the use of these drugs. While visiting Colorado in 1967, Acosta met writer Hunter S. Thompson. Thompson was a struggling journalist who had a drug habit to rival Acosta's own. The two hit it off and began frequent LSD trips and cocaine binges. Later, they teamed up to write an article about the plight of Chicanos in East L.A. During the collaboration, they made a drug-fueled trip from Colorado to Las Vegas that inspired Thompson's book, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. The book became an instant bestseller and was later adapted into a 1998 film directed by Terry Gilliam. And that wasn't the least of it. During his time as a lawyer, Acosta had his personal assistants carry his drugs for him in case he was ever searched. He frequently smoked cigars and kept a supply of LSD tabs in an unlabeled aspirin bottle. His drug use didn't ease up in the 1970s. He was also overweight from a young age and had been hospitalized for ulcers just a few months before his death. The idea that he might have overdosed or suffered a drug-related heart attack is not difficult to believe. The only problem is that Acosta's body was nowhere to be found for an autopsy. Surely there were people in Mazatlan who knew him and could have identified him. Yet in the months after his disappearance, his family could find no trace of him or any John Doe cases that matched his description. Which means a simple overdose was unlikely. It's possible, however, that when he died, the people he was with disposed of his body, fearing they'd get caught up in an investigation and charged with illegal drug use themselves. Especially if they were doing more than just using drugs. Our second theory deals with that angle more directly, suggesting that Acosta was working on a lot more than just writing a novel during his time in Mexico. Perhaps Acosta was involved in drug trafficking. He may even have gotten mixed up in some of the most dangerous cartels to ever come out of Mexico. Coming up, we'll explore the idea that Oscar Acosta was murdered by a cartel. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1974, 39-year-old activist, writer, and lawyer Oscar Zeta Acosta disappeared. 
We explored the hypothesis that Acosta died of a drug overdose and his body was never identified. But our second theory is that instead of an overdose, Acosta was the victim of a drug deal gone bad. Acosta may have gotten into trouble with the drug lords he was working with in Mexico. Mazatlan is in the state of Sinaloa, which would later lend its name to the Sinaloa cartel in the 1980s. But even in the early 70s, Sinaloa was infamous for high crime and narcotics trafficking. It's possible Acosta was trying to work out a deal with his cartel contacts when his famous temper got the best of him. Acosta may have said the wrong thing, which inevitably cost him his life. Although Acosta didn't have much history of drug dealing, there are witnesses who suggest he took it up late in life. Family friend Erwin Siegel stated that in 1973, when he and Oscar went to Mazatlan, he learned Acosta was connected to drug lords from Mexicali and Morelia. We also know that Acosta had traveled south of the border several times to write and immerse himself in his ancestral culture. He even expressed a desire to stop speaking English entirely. But he was no longer earning money from legal work, and his books and public appearances only brought him a minimal income. This led his loved ones to believe that his trips to Mexico weren't just about writing or escaping from white America. Instead, he was trafficking the drugs that were such an important part of his life. Deeply cynical about the U.S. legal system, he apparently felt no moral qualms about his involvement in the trade. More importantly, it was quick and easy money. So Acosta may have gotten into trouble with a local cartel, and his difficult personality cost him his life. After all, his quick temper meant he was also quick to make enemies, and he didn't back down, no matter how powerful his adversaries were. This same temper leads us to our final theory. Acosta's death was an assassination. Acosta was known as a troublemaker and rabble-rouser. He was a political leftist in a time when fears of communism were still widespread. Law enforcement routinely kept tabs on him and would even show up at his door looking for him. In addition to offering legal services to fellow Chicanos in the late 60s, Acosta had become one of the leaders in the fight for equal rights. He marched with protesters and gave speeches at rallies. He successfully argued that Los Angeles County had systematically discriminated against people with Spanish last names in an effort to keep them off of grand juries. In 1969, he defended a group called the Biltmore Six. These were Chicano activists with the Brown Berets, a group that organized protests and fought to bring attention to Chicano civil rights. On April 24th of that year, the group protested a speech by California Governor Ronald Reagan at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles. Several fires were set during the protests. The Biltmore Six were accused of arson. But Acosta argued that the fires had actually been started by an undercover police officer who had framed the group. His arguments worked in court, and the defendants were acquitted. But blaming an undercover cop hadn't won him any friends in law enforcement. And as Acosta gained more experience working on the front lines, 
his perspectives became even more radical. In 1970, he embarked on a controversial campaign for sheriff of Los Angeles County. He didn't expect to win, but he hoped his candidacy would bring attention to the Chicano rights movement. His primary stance was intentionally provocative. He planned to disband the sheriff's department and rebuild it from the ground up. He stated, the police are the violent arm of the rich and I want to get rid of them. Though he ultimately lost the race, he came in second among four candidates and his campaign highlighted the abuses of the sheriff's department. But this made him an even bigger target. If law enforcement hadn't liked him before his political campaign, they hated him now. It didn't take long before they found a reason to arrest him. Acosta was caught with drugs in an undercover sting in Hollywood and arrested in June 1971. Though he was only fined for the infraction, it played a significant role in his decision to leave L.A. and embark on a full-time writing career. Acosta was also known to support the Chicano ideology of the nation of Ostalan. Ostalan was the traditional name for the homeland of the ancient Aztecs. Chicano idealists advocated for secession from the United States to form a nation of Chicanos ruled by Chicanos. At the end of his book, Autobiography of a Brown Buffalo, Acosta spoke of this dream, ending with a sort of call to arms. He wrote, When I have one million brown buffaloes on my side, I will present the demands for a new nation to both the U.S. government and the United Nations. The FBI had opened a file on Acosta in 1970 when he ran for sheriff. Informants within the Chicano movement had passed on information about Acosta's whereabouts and actions. But the file was closed in December 1973, not long before Acosta's disappearance. Could that have been because they decided to silence him once and for all? Federal agents may have killed Acosta and then disposed of his body. By doing so, they got rid of a nuisance who, according to his FBI file, had been involved in civil disturbances and anti-American demonstrations. He was a potential revolutionary, and he needed to be silenced. Acosta's sister, Anita, advocated this theory. She stated, They used to come knocking at my door when Oscar was living with me. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted him to disappear. So did Oscar Acosta's dream of a new nation cost him his life? While it's interesting that the FBI closed its file on Acosta just before his death, it probably wasn't because they decided to assassinate him. It was because he was no longer believed to be involved in revolutionary activities. That's understandable, since he'd quit his high-profile legal career two years earlier. Furthermore, Acosta doesn't seem to have been threatening enough to justify a political hit. While he was one of the prominent faces of the movement, there were others who outshined him in both notoriety and controversy. Why were they permitted to live when Acosta had to be killed? Instead, we think it's most likely that Acosta died in a drug-related disagreement. A family friend confirmed that he was involved with traffickers and his family had plenty of reason to believe it. His comment to Marco about 
a boat full of white snow may very well have been referring to a shipment of cocaine bound for the border town of Mexicali. Acosta's temper and brash personality were well-known trademarks. He was combative and fearless, and his drug use enhanced his sense of his own importance. It's not difficult to imagine him saying the wrong thing to the wrong person and paying for it with his life. The drug dealers who killed him would have had plenty of motive and the means to hide Acosta's body. Even Marco Acosta believes that this is how his father died. He said, knowing the people he was involved with, we think he ended up mouthing off, getting into a fight, and getting killed. While Oscar Zeta Acosta's body may never be found, his life's work lives on. He furthered the fight for Chicano rights, and his brash style brought much-needed attention to their fight for equality. Acosta's two published novels are still in print and have become an integral part of Chicano literary history. In fact, they are often required reading in Latino studies classes. In a 1977 obituary in Rolling Stone, Hunter S. Thompson wrote, Oscar was one of God's own prototypes, a high-powered mutant of some kind, who was never even considered for mass production. He was too weird to live and too rare to die. Instead, Oscar Zeta Acosta exists as a kind of Schrodinger's cat, neither dead nor alive, but instead crystallized in the mystery, a victim of his own complicated demons. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back next week with a short Gone Bite on Spotify and back everywhere else the week after. For more information on Oscar Zeta Acosta, amongst the many sources we used, we found Bandido by Ilan Stavins extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Gone, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Scott Christmas, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. 